This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from the Green News Report, Countdown with Keith Olbermann, the BBC News Quiz, PBS's Need to Know, Jim Hightower, Counterspin, and Green.TV, with a bonus clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from Need to Know. First, a sobering new study concludes that earlier projections of sea level rise by the end of this century are woefully underestimated. Good and news, everything's oh, not as bad as they've predicted. No, everything's no, going to be sorry. okay. As what? usual, these revisions all go in the same direction, oh boy. upward and worse. The new estimate says that accelerating rates of melting polar ice sheets may lead to a sea level rise of 3 to 5 feet over the next 90 years. That's 3 to 5 feet. Previous estimates of sea level rise due to global warming from the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change of less than one foot were troubling enough, but explicitly did not include estimates of melting polar ice caps and the Greenland ice sheet due to lack of data. But now the International Arctic Monitoring and Assessment Program includes that data for the first time and again says by 2100 we might be looking at three to five feet. So when we're talking about a rise of three to five feet in sea level, we're not talking about the water moving in three to five feet from the ocean if you happen to live there. We're talking about the water moving in potentially miles inland and affecting billions of people, correct? That's correct. You can check out the latest maps showing just what three to five feet of sea level rise would look like on your coastline at our website, greennews.bradblog.com. talk a couple of things here more about your concerns about fracking and what you're doing about this and then sort of broadening this out to when people do um, proactive things about about their life and use their success in a public field let me start with this with with fracking and what you hope to do you talked about on the show about about trying to convince governor cuomo not to relax the the rules about fracking in the state where where do the rules stand now are they adequate are they temporarily adequate they're they're woefully inadequate. Mm-hmm. Um, they um, there's no uh, public health analysis. Yeah. There's uh, no um, environmental long term environmental impact study that's been completed. Um, they they don't know what to do with this uh, toxic waste that are coming out. They mm-hmm. they want to they want to uh, uh, deem it a, a medical type waste. So the companies themselves will be in charge oh. of of inventorying it and saying where they go. This is a industry that is the dirtiest, slimiest, uh, m- most arrogant and um, uh, n- negligent that you could imagine. Everywhere they go, they wreak havoc. Everywhere they go. You want to know how they're lying? Their mouths are moving. It sounds to me like this is on a par 
with what they're doing to, to open up the, the, these reserves, to just essentially break a bottle and, and catch whatever comes out and, don't, and leave the broken glass everywhere. Yeah. Or they might as well be using you know, small nuclear charges down there for all the impact that they're having. They might as well be. I mean, how, how do we know that that, <laughs> that is where we're headed? I'm going to say, if they, if they were, would we have any, uh, any way to stop them? I, I don't know. Yeah. It's, um, you know, what, 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 what this has led me to understand is this is, this is about our energy future. Mm -hmm. um, this is the last ditch effort for a carbon based industry to kill the green movement if they can flood the uh our our energy landscape with what they think is cheap gas yeah they turn our entire system over to a gas-based system right now it's mostly coal that's 40 more years of carbon For, th we can't take 40 more no. years of carbon and it will kill the green energy movement in this country right now the green energy movement is, is on the rise, 65% uh, gains in solar. We mm -hmm. see the jobs mm -hmm. moving forward. Um, it, it's, it's having an explosion all over the world. You know, it's, it's being a it's consumer-driven uh, revolution that's happening right now without any subsidies. And um, this is a, what you see is this last-ditch effort to industrialize enormous uh, amounts of, of the American uh, countryside. And what is at stake here is water. They used 150 billion gallons of water last year. Mm. This water can't be remediated. It's coming back out with uranium in it. It's coming back out with heavy salts. They, they were trying to run it through our, our sanitation processing plants, and it was shutting them down. Goodness. So that water, of the 100% of water that is on the planet, only 20% of that is fresh water. Now, we're suffering droughts in the southern states, like the likes of which we haven't seen mm -hmm. in recent history. And we are taking that kind of water out of our fresh water table, never to be seen again. Mm -hmm. And we're actually looking at that as a viable alternative. There's a, there's a whole movement of, of, of some hangers-on that think that gas is the answer to bridging us. Gas is the bridge to nowhere, yeah. guys. Gas is the bridge to another 40 years of carbon. And they are, they are those advertisements with, with, that, with that one actress from, I forget where else she is, but she is now the gas woman. Yes. And it, which She's is a gas She is the exact... Right, absolutely. It's the internet. What the hell? Um, she, but they, they, the amount of money that obviously they bet on this, it is they're they're all in. I mean, it's if, all you, in. if you beat if you beat them, they or they at least they perceive if you beat them, if the, if the anti fracking movement beats them, they're out of business. So they're putting all their chips on the table. It's all chips in. Not th this is the this is the game. Now the the fight back against fracking. To what degree do you think that owes to the movie Gasland? Because it seems to me that this is one of those occasions where something theoretically in the arts, a documentary, a commercially released film, mm -hmm. actually did much better of a job covering this than any, uh, any news organization or even many of the environmentally driven uh, public policy organizations. It did. It, it cracked a nut. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, what was happening is, is, is this was happening in the poor rural areas. And... There's a greater and greater um, disconnect between those areas and, and our media coverage. Mm -hmm. 
And he was able to go and, and show the people who are the victims of this. Disaffected people. Yeah. People who are just getting by. They are the victims of this. They don't have a voice. They don't have a connection to the media. And so Josh, in his genius, in his, in his, in his naivete, decided he'd pick up a camera and go and discover America. Mm-hmm. And ended up giving voice to a population that had been forgo- all but forgotten. And um, these people need that money. Yeah. And they're basically just being bought off. I mean, I heard there was 5,000 NDAs that were sign- have been signed. NDAs? Non-disclosure agreements. Oh, God. So once, you, once your, your life has been ruined, your, 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 your home, I mean, your, 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 your home is worthless after right. this has happened. No one's going to buy it. The banks won't give you a mortgage on it. Once that's happened, who do you turn to? The victim has to turn back to the perpetrator and beg them for... It's a perfect fix if you're a business, but there is always the one wild card in all these equations. Josh Fox. Well, Josh Fox and Mark Ruffalo and anybody who goes out and takes a stand on something... Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm With Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, comedians like Mark Maron, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at Majority.fm. Jeremy, what made Blackpool rock? Fracking. Mm. This has caused a stir in, in our house because my girlfriend's Auntie Janet's got a fish and chip shop in Blackpool and they've had earthquakes. And uh, not that surprising when you think that a company has been forcing high-pressure water into shale in order to release gas underground, which you think might cause a bit of disturbance. In, and, but, of course, they explain it on their website by saying, oh, this is an earthquake. I mean, it's just, really, it's just like standing up too quickly. Or, you know, the way the, the cups rattle when the, uh, when the machines are fast spin, it's really no different from that. <laughs> it's astonishing. In, in it, cause it comes from America, this system, and methane has actually leaked into the water supply. And there's a video, you can see it, and if you turn the tap on, you can set fire to it, which is, you know, great if you're a smoker, not so good if your house is on fire and you're looking for something to put it out. But um... when people say, I've got a terrible problem with me plumbing, they're not yes. joking. It is, your, your taps are farting. Do we really want... I say it's quite funny. I would quite like a house with farting taps. <laughs> but when you think about Blackpool Rock, you think that is about 150% sugar, isn't it? Yeah. Surely if they could bash it hard enough with protons, they could probably create fusion reaction. <laughs> I don't know much about physics, I'm just... <laughs> 
got Brian Cox is in the room. <laughs> Why does he have to travel so far? Why does he have to do that? Otherwise I've the come to Costa Rica to tell you that the sky is further away than trees. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fish swimming. <laughs> if they had legs, they could walk, but they haven't, so they get in the water. <laughs> The controversial operation to drill for natural shale gas on the Lancashire coast via a process called fracking has been suspended following a 1.5 magnitude earthquake near Blackpool. Last month, Tim Yeo, the chair of the Energy and Climate Change Committee, dismissed fears about the safety of fracking as hot air. <laughs> well done, Tim. Nothing assures us you're taking the business of governance seriously like a weak pun. Next, he'll be telling us Fukushima was a flash in Japan. It's not a joke He speaks Chinese And a dozen more Yeah Bet you never knew before Amid all the celebrities that graced the Tonight Show stage, a young biologist captured the attention of the king of late night. And his book called The Population Bomb has sold over two million copies. And his appearances on this show have probably drawn more audience response than any, anyone else we have had on. Would you welcome Dr. Paul Ehrlich. Between 1970 and 1981, Paul Ehrlich sat in the coveted chair next to Johnny at least 25 times. But for a show known for its zany comedy sketches and gags, he wasn't the least bit funny. There's 3.6 billion people in the world today, and we're adding about 70 million a year, and that's too many. I was afraid uh, that we were going to have uh, more and more people hungry, uh, more and more people struggling over scarce resources. It was easy to see in those days that we were wrecking the environment and doing it faster and faster. The very delicate life support systems of the planet, the things that supply us with all of our food, ultimately with all of our oxygen, with all of our waste disposal, are now severely threatened. Ehrlich seemed to be speaking to and for and about the largest generation the U.S. had ever known, the baby boomers. The country as a whole was like, how are we going to handle all these people? Roy Beck was one of the nation's first environmental reporters. We mainly felt it in the schools. Classes doubled up. And then it was the transportation because all of us baby boomers started driving. We saw the suburbs developing, we saw land being changed from uh, natural habitat. The news and television documentaries like this one were filled with stories about the toll too many people were taking on the planet, at home and abroad, where horrible famines in China and India had killed millions. For environmentalists back then, the health of the planet was inextricably tied to the size of its population. Most of the leaders of the environmental movement uh, made it clear that we could not have a sustainable society unless we began to stabilize our population. The future is in our hands. Activists fanned out across the country to spread the message. Now if all of us 
are just willing to pledge to have no more than two children, then within five years, the population growth curve will begin to drop. Well, I think that voluntary sterilization is an exceedingly important tool uh, in helping to control the population. for. A but no one made the case quite like Paul Ehrlich. In the months following the release of the population bomb, Ehrlich helped found Zero Population Growth, or ZPG. The group quickly grew to 35,000 members and nearly 400 chapters coast to coast. Within a couple of years, Zero Population Growth had a lobbyist in Washington, D.C., had a D.C. office, and they were starting to wear ties and try to lobby the government to adopt um, an official U.S. policy of population stabilization. Not that Washington had been ignoring the issue. Several years earlier, Lyndon Johnson, as part of his war on poverty, became the first president to use federal money to subsidize birth control. Part of the war on poverty was efforts to provide family planning and contraception to poor Americans. This is a public health clinic in Chicago that provides birth control information and devices. The idea was, of course, that if a poor American family has too many babies, they can't get out of poverty. But it wasn't just the war on poverty at home. Johnson pushed Congress to aid similar efforts overseas. I will seek new ways to use our knowledge to help deal with the explosion in world population. Our cities are going to be choked with people. They're going to be choked with traffic. They're going to be choked with crime. They're By the time the 1968 election was in full pollution. swing, Overpopulation and its effect on the environment had a place on the platforms of both parties. Nixon, when he took office, wanted to get out ahead of the environmental issue. He perceived that the Democrats were winning on it, but he believed he could match them. He could make it a winning issue for him. Clean air, clean water, open spaces. These should once again be the birthright of every American. He was a clever politician, and he knew a lot of people in the country were very much concerned with the environment. A measure of that concern? In 1970, over 20 million people gathered in their local communities, both large and small, to commemorate the nation's very first Earth Day. All of the leaders of that first Earth Day in 1970 made it clear that while we have to reduce the per capita impact, that in the end, we had to stabilize the population. We could not continue to keep adding to the multiplier. As I sign this piece of legislation, it is only a beginning. It was a new green era. President Nixon created the Environmental Protection Agency, and he pushed through sweeping new environmental laws, including the Safe Drinking Water Act and the Endangered Species Act. Good morning, Mr. President. He also established the National Commission on Population Growth and the American Future. It approaches the problem in terms of uh, trying to find out what we can expect in the way of population growth, uh, where that population will move, and then how we can properly deal with it. Activists thought they were on the way to the national population policy they'd been dreaming of. Not everyone shared their enthusiasm, however. Of course, no movement has success without a counter-movement uh, developing. Conservatives and libertarians were railing against the population growth movement. They were insisting that economic growth was dependent upon population growth. The business community, for example, was totally caught off guard by the environmental movement. 
For the business community, it was simple. A growing population meant a growing economy and a growing bottom line. But that's not what President Nixon's Population Commission concluded. They studied this issue for about two years, came out with a report, and they said they could find no aspect of American society that would be improved by further population growth. By then, other groups were pushing back. In 1968, the Pope warned Catholics that the use of the pill and all other forms of birth control violated church teachings. What became known as the pro-life community considered any effort to regulate population anathema. So we're starting to see politicization of the issue. Between the emerging anti-abortion movement and the business lobby, the population issue quickly became a political minefield for the president. In fact, prior to the commission's final report, Nixon had clearly turned against the commission. Essentially, he ignored the findings of the commission, had him sit down in the Oval Office for five minutes, took some photographs, and that was the end of the commission. And it disappeared without a trace. Just always, always remember, presidential commissions, whatever they're on, are a way that politicians absolve themselves of any responsibility for doing anything sensible. It was the last time Mr. Nixon, or any U.S. president, would ever look at America's environment through the lens of domestic population growth. The link was broken. And even though the U.S. continued to grow faster than any other industrialized nation, it wasn't long before the P word would disappear from the environmental movement's agenda as well. Charges that Washington's support of birth control was ultimately a racist policy came from within the African-American community. Many male minority leaders in the late 1960s suggested that population control programs were genocidal. We have to let our people know that they're coming to get us. You know, and we've got to try to stop them. And this is one of the major reasons why many on the left, many liberals, turned against the population issues, because of this taint of racial uh, coercion. Meanwhile, another polarizing issue. Changes to immigration laws had doubled and would soon triple the number of people immigrating to America. An allegiance to the same. The population explosion was no longer about new babies. It was now about new immigrants. So, at that point, population growth is upsetting people on the right because of abortion, people on the left because of immigration. Culture wars are going to emerge and all of a sudden population is going to be swept up in the culture wars and incredibly politicized. Virtually every environmental, well, every environmental group pushed population farther and farther to the edge and they just left population for somebody else to do, but in the end there was really almost like nobody else to do it. March of last year, Massey Energy Corporation's official record book for reporting unsafe conditions in its Upper Big Branch coal mine said flatly, 
none observed. It turns out that this was a flat-out lie, and a few days later, Upper Big Branch exploded, killing 29 miners. Indeed, Massey's in-house observers had found safety problems, as they often did in this shoddily run, notoriously dangerous mine. But the corporation kept a dual set of books in order to mislead state and federal safety regulators. Massey's official record book, which coal giants must show to government inspectors, is filled with such rosy reports as none observed, while the true dangers are recorded in a set of internal books that are sealed in the corporate closet. However, thanks to a comprehensive year-long probe by a hundred-member team of federal mine safety investigators, Massey's internal reports are now out of the closet. The team's findings reveal not only an ugly safety record, but also a truly ugly corporate culture. The investigators concluded that Massey executives took premeditated, systematic steps to circumvent safety rules, including falsifying records and intimidating workers who tried to report hazards. The probe included interviews with 266 people, but interestingly, 18 Massey honchos, including longtime CEO Don Blankenship, refused to be interviewed, invoking their right against self-incrimination. This is Jim Hightower saying, this goes to the top, all the way to Massey's executive suite elites and board of directors who profited from the deliberate safety shortcuts that killed those 29 men. It also goes to Congress, where corporate protecting Republicans continue to block regulatory reforms that would stop this needless killing of minors. For information, contact West Virginia Watchdog at westvirginia.watchdog.org. Now Mac Underhand was a coal company man, a businessman from out of state. He owned the mountaintop mine with the giant drag line that dug his coal 24 hours a day. But there'd been some delaying from some old fiddle playing Where they tried to mine the cemetery Now Max man had stopped mining, his profits declining Who might this some fiddler be? Who might this some fiddler be? So up Mac drove in his truck Through all the mine muck Until he found the old man where he played Republican politicians are under pressure from their party's right-wing base to reject climate change science, as a June 9th Washington Post report reminds us. This is good to point out, but as the story's lead sentence would seem to indicate, the Post doesn't think climate change is very important either. Quote, it seemed like a straightforward question on a second-tier issue. Would Mitt Romney disavow the science behind global warming? Close quote. So the fate of the planet is a second-tier issue? According to the Post, Romney's views that humans are contributing to global warming are disturbing to the far right, to whom the paper gives ample space to vent. Rush Limbaugh is quoted exclaiming, bye-bye nomination, and adding that, quote, the whole premise of man-made global warming is a hoax, close quote. Similar quotes from the Club for Growth, conservativesforpalin.com, and Christopher Horner of the Competitive Enterprise Institute follow. But there's no indication that what these people are saying is nonsense. Perhaps the reporter justifies omitting mention of the scientific consensus on climate change on the dubious rationale that it's a story about politics and not science. 
So the closest thing to a balancing perspective comes in a citation of a March Gallup poll that concludes that because Republicans largely reject climate change and Democrats largely embrace it, quote, public opinion is politicized, close quote. Using the word politicized to portray as equals views supported by science and rejected by it aids the post in avoiding the facts and playing down the importance of an issue that just might weigh on the future of the planet. And if all the world knew justice now and forevermore Justice at the surface and justice at the core All the joy within my heart would be so free to soar and we're living on a living planet circling a living star from our climate desk this week al gore publicly rebuked the president over climate change in a long essay in rolling stone gore wrote president obama has thus far failed to use the bully pulpit to make the case for bold action on climate change and last month the national academy of sciences one of our nation's preeminent scientific organizations made a clear and unequivocal statement about climate change the academy wrote the environmental economic and humanitarian risks of climate change indicate a pressing need for substantial action to limit the magnitude of climate change and to prepare to adapt to its impacts there are some people who are being forced to adapt right now. They see the effects of climate change in their own front yards. As we reported in February, the city of Norfolk, Virginia is getting an early look at what rising sea levels could mean for coastal communities nationwide. In cooperation with the New York Times, Need to Know's William Brangham reports. When Ed and Julie Guyton bought their house 10 years ago in Norfolk, Virginia, they thought they'd found a perfect spot. We were kind of looking around and had a friend in Norfolk who said, you know, what about Norfolk? Have you thought about moving to Norfolk? So, you know, we saw this great little house right on the water. It's beautiful and uh, it's a great neighborhood. All the homes are nice and the people are nice and it's a great place to live uh, most of the time. The Guytons soon noticed what longtime residents of this neighborhood, known as Larchmont, had begun noticing as well. Seawater encroaching on the streets. At first, it was just a few puddles. But during spring and fall, those puddles got deeper and bigger. After a few years, all it took was a seasonal high tide to put several feet of water onto the road, so deep that cars couldn't drive through it. So streets that normally looked like this would turn into this. Intersections became waterways. This kind of flooding was considered pretty routine, but when a big storm would come up the East Coast, the whole street would disappear. As a result, the Guyton's house has been badly flooded four times in the last five years. They've lost thousands of dollars worth of belongings. All of our kitchen appliances twice, like everything, the fridge, the dishwasher, the stove. All of my tools, the furnace has gone right. twice, hot water heaters at least five times. That was very expensive. In 2006, we had a flood in October that took out all of our heating ducts, and we replaced them all, and in November, we had a second flood and lost them all again. When the Guytons bought their house, they had no idea they were buying in a neighborhood and a city that stands right on the front line of climate change. 
But according to federal government data, Norfolk, Virginia is one of the U.S. cities most immediately at risk from sea level rise. Little national attention was being paid to the situation in Norfolk until New York Times reporter Leslie Kaufman put it on the front page. If you go to some place like Norfolk, you can actually see the sea level rising and you can feel its impacts. If you look at a map put out by NOAA, you can see Norfolk is going fastest. That's why we went there, uh, to show, uh, in theory, what it will look like for the rest of us in 5 or 10 or 20 years. Globally, according to the best scientific measures, sea levels have gone up about 5 to 8 inches in the last 100 years, a side effect, scientists say, of our heavy use of carbon-based fuels like oil and gas and coal. Burning those fuels warms up the planet, and warmer oceans expand, making the water levels go up. The fear is that as the planet continues to warm, and 2010 was tied for the warmest year on record, the world's glaciers will continue to melt. As they do, their water will pour into the oceans, making them rise even higher. According to the New York Times, scientists predict that sea levels could rise three feet more in the next 80 or 90 years, which would wreak havoc on shoreline communities across the globe. Here in the U.S., New York, Miami, New Orleans, the Carolinas, parts of California, all of them could be in serious danger. The science tells us that the sea level is rising and they have all sorts of ways to tell you through telemetry between different satellites and different things, but the global sea rise uh, is rising, it's significant and it's accelerating. The city of Norfolk is particularly vulnerable to sea level rise because not only is the sea around it going up, but much of the land underneath it is going down. Here's why. Norfolk is one of America's oldest cities. It was constructed on top of wetlands and tidal creeks nearly 400 years ago because of its convenient access to the Chesapeake and to the Atlantic Ocean. But over time, that soggy land underneath naturally started to sink downwards. Because the land here is sinking, Norfolk experiences the rising sea more dramatically than most places do. Our region is the largest population center at greatest risk of sea level rise outside of New Orleans. William Stiles is the president of an environmental group in Norfolk called Wetlands Watch. He points out that a huge amount of Norfolk's infrastructure is threatened. Bridges and tunnels and high-speed rail lines could all need to be raised up. The U.S. Navy, which operates the largest naval base in the world in Norfolk, is already spending tens of millions of dollars just to redo its piers. If you look at our rate of sea level rise and then you, you throw in 1.2 million people, largest Navy base in the world, uh, largest manufacturing employer in the state of Virginia at the shipyard, only nuclear capable shipyard, you start piling up the assets of the region, you look at sea level rise and, you know, we are right behind New Orleans. On top of it all, climate change is politically volatile in Virginia. Governor Bob McDonnell has expressed strong opposition to recent attempts in Washington to curtail carbon emissions arguing they'll hurt Virginia's coal industry. The state's attorney general, Ken Cuccinelli II, is deeply skeptical of climate change science. He's petitioning the Environmental Protection Agency in Washington, D.C. to reverse its position that climate change poses a threat to people. In Norfolk, however, especially for residents of neighborhoods like Larchmont, the debate about climate change has an urgency that it might not have in the state capitol. So given your experience, you're not skeptical that these seas are rising? No, I see it firsthand. I can tell folks who are skeptical that when you see the effects 
short term at least of climate change, there's, it's not a question of belief, it's a question of experience. Jim Schultz is a science writer who lives in the neighborhood. He says a lot of residents feel somewhat powerless in the face of the oncoming sea. You stand on inside your house and watch the water slowly rise and you feel that you're on the bridge of a ship that may be sinking a lot faster than you hoped it might. At a time when taxpayer dollars are already stretched to the limit, keeping Norfolk's streets and homes dry is an expensive undertaking. After Hurricane Isabel in 2003 destroyed homes in this neighborhood, FEMA paid to elevate several houses off the ground. See how all their front doors are several feet up in the air? Taxpayers spent well over $100,000 per house for that work. While the houses were higher, the water still came up onto the streets, making them impassable. So residents pushed for more action. The city responded by literally raising the street up 18 inches. They spent over a million dollars elevating a quarter of a mile of asphalt and sidewalks and sewers along the waterfront. It cost about $1.2 million, and we're talking about for basically one street, a long street that sort of goes in a crescent, but we're not talking about a lot of territory. So in the end, you think this was a million-something dollars well spent? I think the investment of the money was worth the expenditure for the moment. I think that if it doesn't work, it's a good test case. But just take the position of a taxpayer who's on a drier part of Norfolk or an inland part of Virginia who says, look, I, I'm sorry, but we have to face facts that that sea is not going to stop creeping upwards. And this is foolish money to be spending. What's your response to there that? There is a point of diminishing returns. I don't think we're to that point yet. I think we can argue that you can take interim steps that are reasonably economic. Does the city of Norfolk have the money to keep doing projects like this, to, to raise streets all over the town? I don't think you really expect me to say yes on this, and I clearly am not going to. Our municipality is not unlike all the cities of, of the nation right now that are dealing with incredible budget deficits. Dr. Teresa Wibley sits on the Norfolk City Council, and she represents the residents whose street was just elevated. She acknowledges her city has a real problem with sea level rise. Thousands of her constituents experience flooding, but she says Norfolk has nowhere near enough money to stop it. I would never tell you that the solution is going to be Norfolk's. The solution is going to be regional and federal. And um, if we can draw attention to this, to this concern and heighten the awareness, then I think that's great. But uh, you know, we're never going to be able to solve this on our own. Some have suggested that in the most flood-prone parts of Norfolk, instead of spending taxpayer money to jack up some houses and raise up a few streets, maybe the government should use that money to buy up the property in the wettest areas and tell people they have to move away. That's not the kind of thing any mayor, any city councilwoman ever wants to have to say to somebody. No, and I would not want to be the city employee walking up and knocking on somebody's door and telling them that. It is a very, very tough decision. On the other hand, I as a taxpayer in Norfolk am paying for that street to be raised, and I don't begrudge it. But if I have to raise too many of them, then that starts to eat into the tax pays that's used to educate my kids. And I have to scratch my head and go, well, all these folks in Shoreline Properties never invited me out to their dock to have a margarita at sunset, but I'm being asked to make them whole. 
We wanted to talk with Norfolk's mayor, Paul Frame, about his city's predicament, and he agreed, but then canceled, citing a scheduling conflict. The mayor has gone out on a limb recently, arguing that his city's problems are so severe that they might have to create what are called retreat zones, areas that are so vulnerable to sea level rise that they might have to be abandoned. Leslie Kaufman reported that the city's public works director acknowledges that for the businesses and homes entrenched on the coast, such a step could be costly and that the city has no money yet to pay them to move. And that, if you live on the shore in Norfolk, might scare you because they're talking about, thinking about, which neighborhoods they cannot defend from the sea anymore. It's very controversial because people have houses and they have investments on the shore. But the fact is, if the sea is rising, there's only so much technology that will keep it back. That is it. These are bulls? Despite all they've been through, Ed and Julie Guyton want to stick it out in their house by the water. They've lived here for a decade and they've put roots down. The Guytons might be eligible for a grant from FEMA to raise their house a few feet off the ground, so they're applying for it. This is my home. You know, I want to feel at home. I know I may have to leave. You just don't want to think about it. It's really hard. This is a high tide. This is the low tide. Meanwhile, the, the Guytons spend a lot of time studying tidal charts and barometric readings. And this one is what they call a tidal clock. Like everyone in their neighborhood, they're nervously watching the water, waiting for it to rise again. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. The GOP instead proposes cutting funding for clean energy research, which is great for the Saudis. In a surprisingly candid interview on CNN, Saudi Prince Al-Walid bin Talal stated the Saudis want oil prices to drop just enough to slow down efforts to develop alternative energy. We want the price to be between 70 and 80, not only to help the West, but also to help ourselves. We don't want the West to go and find alternatives, because clearly the, the higher price oil goes, the more you have incentive to go and find alternatives. At least he's honest. Global emissions of greenhouse gases are actually rising. However, they are now at the highest in history. So says a new report from the U.N. International Energy Agency, warning world leaders that time is running out to reduce global greenhouse gas emissions to stave off the worst effects of climate change. The new report shows that in 2010, global emissions of carbon dioxide began climbing again after the global worldwide recession, reaching the highest levels ever recorded in the modern era. Carbon dioxide is just one of 
of the greenhouse gases emitted by human activity that climate scientists say is causing a dangerous rise in global temperatures and more extreme and intense weather events. We saw a new statistic over the weekend. What was it? A 40% rise in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere over just the last century alone? Yes, and the new numbers give new urgency to the first gathering of world mayors on climate change. The C40 group, headed by New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg, is meeting for the first time this week in Brazil to discuss adaptation strategies for cities to prepare for the predicted increase in deadly heat waves, droughts, and floods predicted with climate change. Issues like noise and health, visual impact and wildlife are often debated when discussing wind energy. But what are prejudices and what are facts when discussing the benefits of wind energy? Vestas welcomes the public debate about wind energy and we hope to provide factual inputs and balanced perspectives on the different issues. This can help shape the debate in ways that lead to better informed decisions about creating a greener future. Wind turbines do create sounds when the blades rotate, but how much? And what can be done to limit the sounds people are exposed to? When local communities want to limit the sounds from wind turbines that residents are exposed to, public authorities have a range of options available. In these cases, Vestas recommends relative noise limits that take into account local background noise levels. This can ensure minimal noise disturbance for wind turbine neighbors while allowing for more wind turbines to be located in relatively noisy areas such as near industry or roads. These noise limits relative to background noise can also be supplemented with absolute maximum limits in areas of very low background noise, like in the countryside. It's important to acknowledge that the swooshing sound the blades make can bother some people. Most people don't live or work right next to a wind turbine, so the sound is typically measured at the nearest dwelling. In Denmark, the sound limit is 44 decibels outside the nearest dwelling, which would typically be some hundreds of meters away. That's somewhere between the sound your refrigerator makes and a normal conversation. Technology can also make a difference in terms of minimizing the sound from wind turbines. Vestas designs its blades to capture the maximum energy from the wind, while at the same time creating as little noise as possible. That's why one of Vestas's newest turbines, the V112, has two different sound modes to accommodate requirements in different circumstances. Some people are concerned about the potential health effects of low frequency and infrasound from wind turbines. But are there any health risks related to these sounds? The issue is not whether wind turbines emit low frequency or infrasound. They do. The issue is whether these sound emissions have negative health consequences. And the answer to this question is no, they don't. 
There are numerous scientifically based, peer-reviewed studies that examine the question of low frequency and infrasound impacts on human health. The science shows that there's no correlation between sound emissions in these ranges and negative health consequences. There is one study that alleges that there's a connection between low frequency and infrasound and human health impacts. That study, however, has been refuted by internationally respected scientists. These experts question the methodology that's used in this so-called study. For example, the statistically insignificant sample size of 10 self-selected families, the absence of a control group, and the fact that this study has never been published in a peer-reviewed journal. Some people don't like the way wind turbines look in the landscape. A valid question is, how can wind turbines blend better into the local surroundings? Vestas uses powerful software to show how wind parks will look in the surroundings. This can help position the turbines to minimize their visual impact. In the end though, we can't escape a simple truth. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Some people like the way wind turbines look, others don't. For example, one can position the turbines in an arcing line rather than a grid formation. This was done on a wind park off the coast of Copenhagen very successfully. With regard to aviation lights, for example, one can synchronize the lights so that they don't blink like an amusement park. There are also newer technologies, for example, that use radar that can detect when an aircraft is approaching and then automatically turn on the safety lights. This reduces the time that the lights are actually blinking to only those times when it's really needed. It's natural that people might be more concerned about things they're not familiar with than things they are familiar with. Interestingly, there's a study from Scotland that shows that as people became more familiar with the wind parks, they were less concerned about them than they thought they would be before the parks were actually installed. Wind turbines placed in natural environments will inevitably have some impact on wildlife, primarily birds and bats. But how significant is this impact and what can be done to minimize it? Wind energy and its impact on the environment and wildlife is an issue that Vestas takes very seriously. Our view is that well-planned siting of wind turbines is the key to minimizing the impact on wildlife. Compared to other power generation technologies that require mining, drilling, refining, and transporting of fuel sources, wind energy is a very environmentally friendly power technology. Let's take a look at a Canadian study that shows different causes of bird fatalities. Here it shows very clearly that wind turbines have an exceedingly modest impact in terms of bird fatalities compared to other activities. And now, for example, it's a common practice to do environmental impact studies before a wind park is actually built. And these studies will look at things like bird populations in the area, their flight patterns, nesting, and feeding habits. And this is done as a way of learning how the natural environment already exists in the area and then minimizing the impact that we have when we place the turbines in their environment. There are also issues about wind turbines' impacts on bat populations. We have to acknowledge, however, that we know a lot less about these impacts than we do with regard to birds. We do know that bats tend to fly in low wind periods and that they're affected more by that 
fluctuating air pressure around the circulating blades more than direct impacts. But much more research is needed in order to find the best possible mitigation strategies to minimize the impacts that wind turbines have on bat populations. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as 5 dollars a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. West Virginia's Upper Big Branch coal mine was a disaster even before it exploded into an underground hell last year, killing 29 miners. A new investigative report by federal safety inspectors found that this mine, owned by the enormously profitable Massey Energy Corporation, was literally a man-made hellhole. Top executives intentionally hid deadly dangerous safety problems from regulators, failed to maintain and sometimes actually disabled safety systems, and aggressively pushed a mining ethic of profit over safety, intimidating and firing those who complained about hazards. What we have here is another grotesque example of America's dereg follies. Corporate lobbyists and right-wing ideologues have yoked our nation to an ongoing corrupt policy of accepting worker deaths as a necessary cost of doing business. Although Massey was recently taken over by Alpha Natural Resources, the new owner has been hiring former Massey executives, including two who had direct oversight of Upper Big Branch. Then, in a move that puts the numb in numbskull, Alpha even hired Massey's chief executive to run its mine safety program. The most craven performer, however, is Congress. Republicans and a few cold state Democrats have cynically blocked passage of tougher mine safety laws that would stop the murderous greed of coal profiteers. Fed up with this, Gene Jones, whose twin brother Dean was killed in the Massey disaster, says he's going to Washington to confront each one of these political scoundrels. If you continue to wait on Congress, he says, it's going to happen again. It's time to do something. I'm just going to speak out the best I can and be honest about it and make them listen to me. This is Jim Hightower saying, to help, contact West Virginia Watchdog at www.westvirginia.watchdog.org.
environmental concern is a little like dieting or paying off credit card debt. An episodically terrific idea that burns brightly and then seems to fade when we realize there's a reason we need to diet or pay down our debt. The reason is that it's really, really hard, and too many of us in too many spheres of life choose the easy over the hard. It wasn't supposed to be this way with the environment, particularly with climate change, after Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth was released in 2006. The Gore film was a key element in what journalists like to think of as a moment, a largely artificial construction that attempts to invest current interest in a topic with enduring significance. The problem is most moments are just that, moments, passing instances of concern and engagement. That's why you hear more talk about moments, which come and go, than you do about milestones, which tend to be more lasting. I was thinking about all this recently as I watched a new documentary, The Last Mountain, which tells the story of a war in West Virginia between the coal industry and communities determined to save what's left of their state from Big Coal's ferocious mountaintop removal. The film features Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and is directed by Bill Haney. One of the producers is Clara Bingham, a friend and colleague of mine. In mountaintop removal, coal companies dynamite the tops of mountains in order to harvest the coal inside, disrupting the environment, the air, the water, and the land in ways a military attack might. The Last Mountain about the Coal River Valley is a powerful documentary which successfully finds the general in the particular. The story of mountaintop removal is about the forests and streams and people of Appalachia, yes. But it's also the story of how all of us choose to live, relying on energy, be it foreign oil or coal, that exacts the highest of prices. The true cost of oil in terms of our national security is well known. The wages of coal are less so, and that's one reason The Last Mountain is worth our attention. Nearly half of the electricity in the United States comes from the burning of coal. 30% of that coal comes from the Appalachian Mountains. Mountaintop removal has destroyed 500 mountains, a million acres of forest, and 2,000 miles of streams. In terms of health, a new Harvard Medical School survey puts the health and environmental costs at $345 billion annually. I could go on, and the movie does. The key point is that we have no widely accepted national energy strategy to put us on a realistic course toward renewable resources. The Last Mountain makes a case for wind power. There are other alternatives too, including nuclear, that need coal-dyed exploration. The Last Mountain is about the struggle to save a singular place, and it's a vivid reminder of a larger struggle over energy and the environment that's not the work of a moment, but of generations. This is Raven Mattingly from Louisville, Kentucky. Um, I was just calling to make a comment about the um, climate change podcast. Um, I was listening to the the conversation between Tom Hartman and RFK Jr., and they were talking about Blair Mountain in West Virginia. But what a lot of people keep forgetting um, is that Kentucky and West Virginia, um, there's a lot of similarities. Um, West Virginia is... Um, you know, its economy is almost completely dominated by coal mining, and in parts of Kentucky, there are two. Um, you know, we have our coal fields in the east and our coal fields in the west, and in fact, we've had, um, we're 
losing mountains at the same rate. We've had entire cities, almost entire counties, completely decimated by strip mining and mountaintop removal. Um, and the, the one thing that, the other thing I think that people tend to overlook is how impoverished these areas are. Um, for some people, especially in some of the hills and hollers of eastern Kentucky, um, the only job in town and the only way to feed your family is to go work for the coal mine and work for the coal company. And not that I'm defending coal because I'm not. I think mountaintop removal and the way the coal industry in this company is is horrid. Um, but I think also think that these companies have a vested interest in keeping, you know, Appalachia, you know, in poverty simply because, you know, if you have to drive three hours to the nearest major city or drive two hours to go to college, um, you know, people, people down there don't have that kind of money, don't have that kind of time. And these people, you know, it's, it's, it's a completely different world in eastern Kentucky. And sometimes I think the coal companies are somewhat complicit in helping um, eastern Kentucky and West Virginia to, to keep the, the status quo. And the other, the other thing that's not brought up, especially, you know, considering that I live in Louisville, is we don't hear about mountaintop removal or strip mining or anything else because the media keeps it out. There's kind of a perception, at least, and this is just for Kentucky, that, you know, Louisville, Lexington, and the Cincinnati suburbs are one part of the state, and then there's everywhere else in Kentucky. And it's, it's, it's almost like it's two completely different worlds. And I have been, you know, I've been to the coal, the coal towns in eastern Kentucky, and these people are poor. You would not believe the conditions that people are living in, in 2011 in the United States of America. These are people have houses that don't have electricity, do not have running water, they don't have access to health care. And in some ways, I think the coal companies are somewhat complicit in that because if they if they um, keep doing the strip mining, keep providing the only decent job in town that families can put on the table, put put food on the table, put you know help pay their bills and whatnot. You know, they're going to be able to keep reaping the, prof the profits of coal while destroying, completely destroying the landscape of, of West Virginia and Kentucky. And the other thing is with mountaintop removal, if we can figure out a way to help the people in these regions lift themselves out of poverty, maybe the jobs at the coal mines would not be so attractive. Thanks. Hi, this is uh, Kevin out of the Allentown slash Philadelphia area. Um, I'll call you about uh, yesterday on the 16th of July. Me and a couple other people from the Citizen Radio and uh, and just people in general from Philadelphia went to a U.S. Uncut uh, protest of Bank of America. We stood outside for about two hours and it was really great. And I'm imploring everybody who listens to Best of the Left in the Philly and or Pennsylvania area around Philly or New Jersey, too. Jersey's cool. Uh, to please um, go to usuncutphilly.org uh, and uh, sign up for the U.S. Uncut Philly group, uh, usuncutphilly at gmail.com. There's a whole bunch of us that are doing stuff so you can get updates and we can all get together, have a good time, and eat some nice uh, some nice food after we try to take down the man and what have you. 
Okay. Well, uh, have a good one. Hey, Jay, this is Carlos calling from Chicagoland. I just got through listening to the the newest episode on the police state, and I just want to say that I was incredibly happy to listen to this episode, and it was one that I was hoping that you would be producing sometime soon. Like, when you get this story about Lee Camp and Troy Davis, and like that's something that you only hear on, like, on Amnesty International, you know, uh, reporting about it on Demac- Democracy Now!, because it's just a story that it's so messed up and nobody talks about Oh, like, the thing about the progressive reporting about uh, the Pelican Bay uh, hunger strike the prisoners are, are having. And I just want to say that I, uh, my comment is that I think that these are stories that, are, like, the police state and, like, the, the way that we, the, the way that criminals, like, quote-unquote criminals are being treated is is ridiculous. And, like, they're dehumanized. And, and it's something, it's a message that really has to be talked about. And I also have a call to action, and I want to... I want to, um, I guess, echo what Lee Camp said in his clip that about that everybody out there needs to be out there and call the gov- governor deal and tell him that to let Troy Davis be a free man because like all the evidence points to that. And then hopefully that episode um, will actually clear a lot of uh, your listeners' doubts about whether or not uh, Munya Avila Jamal should be played. And hopefully that that proves that like. Every single person's voice matters, especially someone as smart as Munya. And I just want to say that I love the show. And once again, thank you so much for playing this episode on The Police State. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So uh, in, in the previous episode, I laid out an idea that I had had about how to get uh, liberals, progressives, Democrats, all of the above, all on the same message, something that hasn't been able to be done in uh, – the entire history of of you know progressive thinking basically and so there there was one aspect to that uh, story that I kind of forgot to tell plus didn't have time to tell which was the realization I had so to to back up a little bit I was having dinner with a listener uh, we had this discussion about why uh, you know Democrats can't stay on message when the Republicans can it's because Republicans are authoritarian minded they can take instructions from the top down Democrats are more independent thinking. They like to say what's on their mind. They don't like being told what to say. So the idea that I came up with was let's come up with a you know grassroots, small d democratic system to uh, kind of generate from the bottom up the best possible talking points with the hopes that we could then you know push those talking points out into the ether, get them into the you know mainstream thinking, and then liberals, progressives, Democrats would go out and use those talking points, and they would be better armed with with the best possible uh, things to say on any given topic, and uh, and if everyone is using the best thing that they can possibly say, then hopefully all those people would actually get on the same page as well. It's a win-win. So that was the idea that I came up with over dinner, and then I had this kind of realization. I was like, well, okay, wait, hold on, hold on. Let me let me get this idea straight. Did I just come up with an idea to sort of you know aggregate together all the best ideas, uh, allow the best of the best ideas to rise to the top, and then take those and kind of amplify them out into the you know political ether, you know more so than uh, than they would otherwise? That sounds 
eerily familiar. <laughs> so having this realization, I was like, oh, you know what? I'm not very surprised that I came up with this idea. It's uh, it's almost like I've been training to come up with this idea for years now. So um, yeah, I I got quite a kick out of that, realizing, you know, oh, this isn't a new idea. This is exactly what I'm already doing, uh, just in a different format. So you know, I I think that's actually funny and heartening. Like the show worked, so why wouldn't uh, the same concept in a different format uh, have at least a good chance of working? Uh, so anyways, again, this, this, the whole idea, I mean, I, someone needs to go do it. Uh, someone who can code a website, uh, I certainly can't. And uh, so if you're interested and you want to like work with other people on it, get in touch with me. Or if you want to bounce some ideas off me, I'm more than happy to help in the idea uh, concept realm. And then when you start talking about PHP, you'll lose me instantly. Uh, so don't even bother. But uh you know, I, I think I think this is something worth checking out, worth trying, and um, I hope someone else thinks the same way so that I can see it happen and then find out if it passes or fails. So that's really all I wanted to add today. Now I just want to thank a couple of uh, members and all the volunteers, of course, as I always do. Mike, Colette, Todd, Joe, Laura, Emerson, a couple of new volunteers, Mel and Sharice, welcome, and uh, production assistant Lauren. I can't thank all of you guys enough for uh, helping make the show possible. And then members Roy J signed up for his leftist monthly membership back on October 26th of last year and has been sticking with the show since then. And Kenneth B signed up for a leftist yearly membership back on January 30th. Huge thanks to uh, both of those members, all of the members and donors who make the show possible. I obviously couldn't do it without your support. Of course, everyone can support the show simply by telling everyone you know about it and helping spread the individual clips online through your social networks. All that is really easy now over at bestoftheleft.com. To stay connected to the show between episodes, join up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all those details are always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 11 times a month, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thought but black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Bitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to be A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor It's just a fun flare